A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. The Dunning-Kruger effect describes this psychological phenomena. It states that people with limited knowledge in an intellectual domain tend to overestimate what they know. Often, people with a casual understanding of a problem oversimplify to get to a solution. We've seen this pattern up close with data. At Alation, we run a state of data culture report, and with the first version of this report, we uncovered an interesting finding. The people most likely to self-report as having a top-tier data culture often engage in practices that suggest their data culture could, well, use some work. You don't know what you don't know. But that overconfidence, if you keep learning, eventually it'll self-correct. Case in point, in two years, we saw a dramatic dip in the people claiming to have a top-tier data culture from 35 to 15%. I see this as a great sign of a maturing market. I think it means that people are learning more about what it takes to be data-driven and realizing that they have so much more work to do. So what is the data on being data-driven? What do the numbers tell us about the state of data culture, the state of data literacy, data governance, and data discovery within an organization? Where are leaders focusing their time and energy to build a data culture? And what can they learn from other data-driven leaders? We're digging into all this and more with our guest today, Randy Bean. Randy is the founder and CEO of New Vantage Partners. He's also the author of Fail Fast, Learn Faster, Lessons in Data-Driven Leadership in an Age of Disruption, Big Data, and AI. Randy is also a regular contributor to Forbes, the Harvard Business Review, and the MIT Sloan Management Review. During our conversation, we'll be discussing New Vantage's research from the 2022 edition of their annual Data and AI Leadership Survey. It's full of fascinating findings about what it means to be a CDO today. Welcome to Data Radicals, a show about the people who use data to see things that nobody else can. This episode features an interview with Randy Bean, founder and CEO of New Vantage Partners. In this episode, he and Satin discuss the adoption of the chief data officer role, the challenges of creating a data culture, and the importance of soft skills for CDOs. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Alation enables people to find, understand, trust, and use data with confidence. Our data governance solution delivers trusted, certified data fast. As one customer said, Alation is like Google search for your data. It helps identify what data we have and more importantly, how to properly make use of that data. Learn more about Alation at alation.com. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com. I'd love to start by just asking you how you came to this work. How did you come to think about data culture? Why is this a topic of interest to you? And how did your career get you to a point where you were perhaps the foremost writer on the topic? What's less of a surprise is that I write. What's more of a surprise is that I actually do things related to data. Because when I was an undergraduate, I studied literature and history, and I had a passion for writing. But when I went to become employed, the jobs were really in technology. And specifically, I was hired and trained to be a COBOL and assembler programmer. This was with one of the major banks in the U.S. But what I became interested in was not so much the commands and moving stuff around, but it was the stuff that I was moving around, which was the data. And one of the first questions I had was I was assigned responsibility for something called deposit accounting history, where they captured all transactions and all interactions with customers over a six-year period of time. And I said, wow, you have this information. What do you do with it? 
And they kind of growled and they said, well, the regulators make us hold on to it for six years and then we can destroy it. And I was just astonished. And from that point in time, I've really had a passion and an interest for how organizations can take the data that they have and they can leverage it to derive business value. So for me, it's always about, you know, regardless of what investments that you're making in data, are you delivering business value in terms of outcomes? You mentioned that early anecdote, which I think a lot of people could relate to in the sense that, especially if you're in a regulated industry, you know, there's all this stuff, you don't use it. But these trends and these patterns, I think they haven't been very clear to people for certainly most of the time that you've been doing this work. What caused you to write about it and to evangelize it and to think about it more globally? The thing that over the course of the years that I've became, become interested in and focused on is change and transformation and how organizations change or don't change. And over the course of my career, I've seen some things change, but th- some things remain the same. You know, when I started my career, People were saying, how can we take the data that we have to be smarter, wiser, make better decisions? And they're fundamentally still asking those questions today. And data has proliferated significantly and computing power has increased. So what it suggested to me is that the obstacles to becoming a data-driven organization have less to do with technology precisely and much more to do with cultural change. And because data is an asset that flows across the organization, particularly for legacy companies, they're not set up to manage data as an asset and think about data as an asset. So, you know, it's a destination or or I should say it's a journey. It's not a destination. What I mean by that is that you never get to a place where you can just kick back and say you're, you're, you're data driven. Rather, things change, data continues to proliferate, computing power increases, business problems and opportunities change. So it's an ongoing quest for organizations and they need need to be committed to stick with it for the long haul. Do you feel like people acknowledge or are acknowledging more of this kind of continuous journey, endless journey aspect of of being on on the data journey? Or do you feel still feel like there's a crowd out there that considers it to be sort of a one-time project? More so, but literally I've walked into organizations six or seven years ago where I've met with a line of business president and they've said, can you help us become data-driven and get this done within the next 90 days? So, you know, when I hear questions like that, that's kind of uh, disheartening to say the least. We do a survey each year of leading Fortune 1000 companies and the highest data level executive. These days, it's a lot of chief data officers and chief analytics officers, roughly two-thirds of the respondents, but it also includes some CEOs, COOs, chief digital officers. But we ask five key questions, and those are as follows. Is your organization driving business innovation with data? 56.5% say yes, roughly 45% say no. Are you competing on data and analytics? 47.4% say yes, over 50% say no. Are you managing data as a business asset? 39.7% say yes, roughly 60% say no. Have you created a data-driven organization? Only 26.5% say yes, and roughly three-quarters say no. And have you established a data culture? Only 19.3% say yes, and over 80% say no. So that both points to a challenge that organizations face. It also points to a tremendous opportunity, both for the profession 
and for organizations and for people in the profession to work to achieve positive outcomes in the years ahead. We run a survey here at Alation as well, and we've done that called the sort of State of Data Culture Report. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of the findings that we have in our work is really similar to the work that you have in yours. And one of the interesting findings that we've had is that there's this kind of Dunning-Kruger effect, which is this like, you know, fancy way of talking about people's ability to sort of overestimate their own capability intellectually. So people are inclined to overestimate their own capabilities with data. Apparently, you know, the people who say they're the best with data often exhibit many of the characteristics or many of the things that perhaps don't make them great at data. Do, do you find any of that in your research? I thought that was the biggest irony in finding in, in the research that we've we've done over time. Totally true. People ask me, what are the characteristics that I see of data-driven organizations? And I point to organizations like, for example, Capital One. In every conversation that I ever have with Capital One, they say, what are others doing? What's coming along? What should we be doing that we're not? In other words, their relentless drive to be data-driven means that they never rest. They're never comfortable. They're always looking for better ways. They're always looking to see what others are doing because they know that unless they continue to do things to stay data-driven, that they won't be the most data-driven going forward. And when I go into organizations and they sit back with their arms folded and they say, yeah, we have it all figured out, those are the organizations that I truly worry about. You know, one part of being a data-driven organization, or at least one investment that we look for, is the investment of of having a CDO in the organization, a chief data officer. And you ran a survey that said that in the last, I guess it's been 10 years, the number of CDOs have increased in the organizations that you're surveying by from 12% to almost 70%. How do you see that number changing behavior. That must be a pretty positive signal from your perspective. How do you see that sort of changing in the role over over that time period? Yeah, and this is a topic I could talk on uh, all, all day, frankly, but, I, but I'll spare you from that. So to be precise, when we started the survey in 2012, only 12% of the Fortune 1000 firms that we surveyed indicated that they had a chief data officer and this year, in 2022, for the report that we released in January, 73.7% said yes. That's the good news. But at the same time, we asked about the success of the chief data officer role. And two years ago, we asked whether the role was successful and established, and only 27.9% said yes, and 70-odd percent said no, it hasn't been. That's improved in 2022 to up by 40% that now say it's successful and established, but 60% say the role is still not successful and established. And there's a variety of reasons for that. First of all is that the initial chief data officers, particularly in financial services who invest heavily in data and analytics, started to be appointed after the financial services crisis of 2008-2009. And their roles were largely regulatory and compliance oriented. So in a way, the C-suite executive team could check the box and say, we now have a chief data officer and operate under the assumption that all things would be solved. Well, you know, the chief data officers uh, are largely a new role over the course of the past decade. In the same way that a generation ago, the chief information officer was a new role and people joked at the time that CIO stood for career is over. So there's that same level of instability and lack of expectations. You know, over the course of the past decade, we've seen 
a variety of manifestations in terms of where the chief data officer reports. It has ranged from the CIO as a frequent spot, but also in some cases to the uh, chief financial officer, chief digital officer, and even the chief marketing officer. We've seen greater consistency in recent years, and we've seen more and more chief data officers move out from under the CIO and become more closely aligned with the business. We've also seen the analytics function sometimes characterized as the uh, chief analytics officer merged in to create a chief data and analytics officer function. But organizations continue to transition pretty heavily through the role with some of the major banks. They're on their fifth, sixth, and even seventh person in the chief data officer role. So the point in all of that is that it's a new role. There's not a clear blueprint. It's not one size fits all for all, all organizations. A lot depends upon the culture of the organization, the nature of their business. So it's very much a work in progress, but you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. I think you can look at this research where you say, look, it's there's only 40% that are feeling like the role is solidified. And that sounds initially quite negative, but I think if you maybe pull back, it also strikes me that one of the reasons why a lot of chief data officers are so short-lived in their role is not just because the role is difficult, but because other people are hiring them away for bigger and bigger salaries. Because everybody's looking for like the experienced chief data officer, and yet the role's been around for 10 years. So, you know, the amount of experience is pretty finite. You hit the nail on the head. So this past summer, wrote a co-authored an article in Harvard Business Review, review with Tom Davenport and uh, an executive recruiter from Ridgeway Partners. And we pointed out that the average tenure in the industry was roughly two and a half years. But as you said, you know, if you're a chief data officer and you're running into challenges in terms of developing the level of business sponsorship that you need and running into those type of headwinds and you're getting calls for three other organizations saying that we have roles for you here if you're interested, it can be very tempting and plus the compensation now for chief data officers, from my perspective, is extraordinary. And it's certainly far greater compensation than many of these data and analytics leaders have ever seen in their life. But also it creates significant expectations as well. So when organizations are paying that highly for talent, they sometimes expect results to be achieved very quickly. And they sometimes don't have the patience and understanding that sometimes the benefits of investing in data manifest themselves over time and can't necessarily always be measured from quarter to quarter. If I'm a chief data officer in a global 2000 company, what should I expect to get paid? What are the ranges of compensation for these folks? Oh, you know, the packages go into the seven figures these days, you know, and, and in some they go into the multiple seven figures. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, pretty significant compensation packages. Yeah. And, you know, phenomenal for folks to build a career path around and and to think about the impact they can have in, in such a large role. So one of the things that struck me is as we, because we founded Alation interestingly in 2012, you know, right at about the time where you're tracking this initial data in your study. And, you know, over that time period, one of the things that I'd seen is that, that initially chief data officers, while they were the theoretical role, were too busy focusing on what you describe as compliance efforts, defensive efforts. And a lot of your research now tracks that they're moving towards more offensive efforts. Do you see that trend accelerating? Talk a little bit about that. Is that industry dependent? Yeah, I'd make two points there. So we see a definite shift from defense 
to offense. We we see a huge aspiration. Sometimes the aspiration is greater than the, than the reality because people, generally speaking, would rather be doing activities that help grow an organization and grow new markets and grow revenue as opposed to putting their fingers in the holes in the dike, so to speak. So one of the things I've noticed over the years is that many of the chief data officers are very eager to talk about their offensive activities and less eager to talk about their defensive activities. But regardless of that, there has been a significant shift. And evidence of that shift really is in the integration of the analytics function into the responsibilities of the chief data officers, because typically the analytics activities tend to be focused more on offensive as opposed to data management or compliance activities. The other side of the, uh, not the other side of the equation, but another way of looking at it is sometimes we describe it as the technology of data and the business of data. And the technology of data might be everything associated with ingestion and creating a platform and creating an environment by which an organization can utilize and access data to deliver business outcomes. But the business of data can be very much focused on what are the critical business questions, what are the use cases, what are the data that's needed, required to answer those questions, and how does that tie back to the data that's being culled and organized and made available. Which are two different skill sets because, you know, one is understanding technology and the other one is understanding sort of people's, you know, somewhat evolving and changing business requirements. And then with the defensive mindset, you've kind of got this very procedural, almost legal approach, which, you know, tends to be very mechanistic. One quote that I thought was particularly telling from your research was from a chief data officer who said, I feel I'm failing in my job because I'm expected to carry out cultural change as well as implement a series of important technical changes. I'm not experienced in change management and find the cultural change to be very difficult to achieve. And so you, you have these people who may have, to the extent they even grew up as a CDO or in the CDO function, really experienced at doing all of this kind of procedural compliance work. And now all of a sudden they're applying for and being expected to drive cultural change. What are the skill sets and are these people, are there people who have been able to be successful at doing both? Well, ultimately to have the maximum business impact, it's a transformative role, which means it's a change management role because you're trying to move the organization to an organization from where it's been in terms of its traditional data capabilities and into a more data enabled type of environment. So, you know, I, I speak to many CDOs on a regular basis, as well as aspiring CDOs or organizations looking for CDOs. And when they talk about extensive or deep experience and expertise around data management capabilities or developing algorithms, you know, my message to them is that's not what counts ultimately in terms of delivering the most value to organizations. It's really the ability to effectively develop business sponsorship, define what the key business issues are, to make sure that data is being made available to the business decision makers. And those are the things that seem to consistently correlate to the greatest business outcomes for an organization. Of course, then if you're not able to drive the, the transformation, there's the failure pattern of people being short in the roles and not succeeding. And for better or for worse, I've seen that pattern as well. What are the signs if you're a CDO that you're on your way out? You know, if you how do you know when you're not succeeding and what are the telltales that you can look for to sort of tell yourself, hmm, this might not be what I'm hoping it was going to be? 
What I see is that many chief data officers, in part because they're new in the role or they're new with the organization, they tend to overpromise or uh, set expectations for things that are difficult to deliver and they don't have those tough arguments up front. Many of them are new to the C-suite, so they don't realize how tough things can be when things don't go well. And also, many of their responsibilities have been carved out of the responsibilities of other executives, be it the CIO or perhaps the chief digital officer. And so those executives are all on board and fully willing to support things as long as results were achieved. And when they don't see those results and they don't see them in a timely fashion, that they lose patience and they feel that, you know, maybe they could have done better. So, um you know, the st- a level of resentment starts to build. So it's it's a pattern that see often. Those uh, CDOs that are most successful quickly establish trust within business, with business sponsors. They work with the business sponsors, each of the individual business sponsors, to identify what are the one or two or three most important things to them or one, two or three most important business questions and see if they can solve those questions, even if it's with a very small subset of data, to begin to develop that relationship, that trust. When they repeat that trust, it starts to establish further deepens credibility and it starts to establish momentum. But if that momentum isn't established and people are waiting to see, and it's one of these, you know, uh, building something, but without any type of foreseeable return, then the tide can change pretty quickly. I think the point that you mentioned that bears just a ton of repeating is this idea of fighting the hard battle up front and the focus on being popular. Because I do think a lot of these, a lot of these new folks know a lot about data and technology but may not necessarily know how to negotiate for resources and clearly define projects and prioritize and take quick wins. And so these are all executive skills, but the idea that you're in the very early days going to do something small and deliver on it, that's been a consistent theme of the podcast that we've heard from other chief data officers who've been successful in the role. I'd add some other things along that line too, and that is is that you know, data can have its own lingo, you know, data meshes and data fabrics and data lakes and and so forth and so on. And, you know, this can sound daunting or sometimes it can even sound mysterious or even as excuses to, to, to line of business executives. I tell the story sometimes of a data leader that went to the president of the company and said, I need $25 million to invest in MDM. And the business leader turned to them and said, the answer is no. When you can come back to me and explain what the business value is, I don't know what MDM is. None of the other executives here understand what MDM. And when you can come back to us and articulate it in, forms, in the form of, you know, this will help us grow our customer base, increase our customer profitability, help us enter new markets, then we can talk about a $25 million investment. Yeah, and most people, I think, in IT think that MDM is mobile device management. So, I mean, you you, you like even have that, right? I mean, it's like acronyms on acronyms for things that, you know, people don't necessarily care about. But, you know, ultimately, you're going to try to change culture. And changing culture is a lot about teaching people to be literate and, you know, how do they think? You identified a list of things that are barriers to building a data culture. Would love for you to talk about that because I think it, it decomposes this 
very amorphous idea into something pretty tangible. Can you tell us about what those barriers are and how people should think about them? We've been asking the same question for many years. What's the principal challenge to becoming data-driven? You know, in 2018, 80% of the respondents said it was cultural factors, and only 20% said technology. By this year, it was up to 92% said cultural factors, and only 8% said technology. So change is something that many people don't like, and it's easy for organizations to pay lip service at the top of the organization But until it fully manifests itself with the mainstream of the organization, it doesn't really take hold in in a tangible fashion. We've seen organizations do various things to help build, you know, greater culture, greater culture of data within their organizations. And some of these things work to varying degrees. One organization we saw created a series of cartoons, which I thought was creative. So they showed people... uh, producing data and people in all roles within the organization who touch data so it could make it real and tangible to people within the organization and how data was then later applied to serve customers in a satisfactory fashion. So by having people identify with these cartoon characters, it made it a little bit more friendly. You know, I can't say one way or another, whether it's really successfully transformed the organization. But it was a novel idea, and uh, I thought it was very clever. It seems like so much of what goes into creating a data culture has everything to do with the CEO and perhaps less to do with the CDO, or a CDO is really a functionary within the role. You know, is that, do, do you see that as being true? Are there, comp- are there examples where maybe the CEO is either, you know, maybe if they're not bought in completely or not sponsoring it completely, maybe just you know, neither here nor there about the thing, but it it can succeed? Or does this have to start from the top down? Well, you know, I I have the uh, benefit or misfortune of having worked in uh, Silicon Valley three years during the internet boom from like 1998 through 2001. And at that point in time, be it the venture capitalists or people in industry were saying like, wow, it's going to radically transform everything and it's going to do that overnight. And, you know, if you're not online and digital, you know, you're going to die out within two years. So the interesting thing, at least from my perspective, was that the Internet and the digital transformation actually fully fulfilled its mission. But it really took the better part of a decade or or two decades for that to happen. In other words, people don't necessarily adopt new technologies and and new approaches and new ways of doing things overnight. People have to get comfortable with them and it has to become established. So I think there is a growing comfort and understanding within organizations of the importance of data. You know, it's even manifests itself in You know, even recently or in the past few years, I've heard within organizations saying, oh, not another data project. And I say, you know, you should never think in those terms. Data is something that's a primary asset of the organization. It's not not a project. It's not a, a little thing within some part of the organization. It should be one of the things that's most central, just like you think of the finances of an organization. So it's that shift in thinking to think that data is something that matters to all of us as opposed to data is something that's relegated to some group that uh, you know we all only call upon when we need them. Yeah. So that idea that it matters to everybody, you know, has to be a drive that comes in multiple levels of the organization then ultimately. 
Yeah, and it's a bit of a, a, a generational change. And when I mean generational, I mean something that takes place over time. But it's been pointed out to me recently that generations in terms of database platforms come in like five-year increments. You know, when I first started New Vantage Partners, we were helping companies move from, you know, whatever it was, data warehousing environments to Nateza type of environments. And then five or so years later, it was moving from Nateza to Hadoop. And now everybody's, you know, rushing off of Hadoop to get into uh, various type of cloud platforms or, you know, various data lake, decentralized, recentralized configurations. How you've seen the data, you've seen the trends. Where will the chief data officer role be in the next five years? How do you think data culture will be thought of as an exercise? Will it go away as a trend? How do you think about what trends you'll see in the next five years? And what does your research lead you to believe that time period, the next half decade looks like? Yeah, well, I'd say two things. First of all, I think uh, data radicals is the absolutely appropriate name for, for these discussions, or maybe even data anarchists, because you have to be willing to break traditional patterns. I think the Tremendous news in, you know, the findings that have been published is that there's a huge opportunity in the data profession. I think it's an opportunity that will persist over the next generation. There's so much work to be done. We're really still, in many respects, from a long-term perspective, in a nascent stage in terms of how organizations can effectively use data, how they can manage themselves to use data and how people can develop the skills and capabilities to be effective as data leaders. And as we've talked about, I think much of that has to do with really the cultural and change management issues and breaking down the barriers between data jargon and business jargon. I know people have said to me, well, you know, the, the, the business people just don't understand what we're talking about. But the reality is, is the business people are the ones that are bringing in the revenue of the organization. I mentioned I started my career as a COBOL and assembler programmer, and I couldn't just continue to speak the technical jargon. I realized that I had to learn to speak the language of the business executives. And that's why in all the writing I try to do, I always have in mind the CEO of a Fortune 1000 company and with whether they would understand what I'm saying. And I sometimes kid that, therefore, I write at a third grade level. But I don't mean that in a bad sense. I mean that if you can't explain something to someone, then it's going to be very hard to achieve the outcome that you are seeking to achieve. And sometimes people say to me, what do you think about data meshes and data fabrics? And I'm like, I, I don't know what you mean. I try not to. <laughs> yeah, they say uh, data meshes and data fabrics. And I'm like, yeah, I'm still not getting it. Could you maybe explain what it is you mean to me when you use those terms? And sometimes it's very hard for them to explain. So, you know, it's a good test of people. If they're going to articulate business value, they should be able to describe the terminology in ways that translate to business value. Data anarchists, data radicals, I think those are different things, but we'll need to cover that off in a future pod. So today, no matter what we call ourselves, Randy's reminder that it's on us to break traditional patterns is one that really resonated with me. We're always going to face future resistance to change, and we're always going to run into a few people who exemplify the Dunning-Kruger effect a little bit too well. People who think that driving data culture is quick and simple work. But if you've made it this far in this podcast, you know how hard the work is, 
and also how valuable it is. So stay the course, keep learning, and keep sharing. This is Satyan Sangani, CEO and co-founder of Alation. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Is your organization ready for its next compliance audit? Data governance can help you pass that audit while also supporting innovation, accelerating analytics, and mitigating risk. Read this evaluation of 12 data governance solutions at alation.com slash DGQ3. That's alation with an A dot com slash DGQ3.